The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture for this morning is from Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern that is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with a sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may be seated. Thank you, Lily. That was a great job. It was a novel you had to read, so bravo. Well, uh, we are amidst a two-week mini-sermon series uh, before Easter, and we are uh, going through the topic topic of worship. Um, last week we looked at Revelation 5 and seeing what worship will be like on that great day where, where Jesus is on the throne and all things are being made new and um, things are beginning to be complete as he makes sense of all of our stories. And today we're looking at Romans 12. Uh, and, and we chose the topic of worship um, to go through in, in these small two weeks uh, because we want to be a place and a people who are marked by Um, a growing understanding of what it's like uh, to live worship-filled lives. That we want to be a people who um, don't just stick with a paradigm we are comfortable with, but really do seek to understand what a worship-filled life looks like. 
And so this morning um, here in Romans 12, uh, I don't say this to sound an alarm, but this is certainly something that is um, confronting to the Western context. And I I say it because I I invite you uh, to examine what it may have for you. Uh, what Holy Spirit is trying to say and speak uh, as we look at what a a life of worship looks like. And uh, with that in mind, it's going to be helpful. We're going to say the word worship a lot. Uh, uh, What's a way of defining worship as we move forward? And uh, for simplicity's sake, uh, worship is this. Worship is giving ultimate worth to something deemed ultimately worthy. Simple enough. Uh, Giving ultimate worth to something we deem ultimately worthy. And so with that in mind, Romans 12 will show us three things that we'll look at. First, how a life of worship changes us. Uh, Second, how a life of worship involves us. And third, how a life of worship fuels us. And so with that in mind, let's go to the Lord and uh, pray. Lord, would you this day remind us why we do what we do? And Lord, also uh, fine-tune and, and, and instruct us on how to worship well. Uh, many of us are in this room out of habits, some out of deep intrigue, some out of curiosity, some hungering and thirsting. Lord, I pray that you would use your truth to um, disturb those who are comfortable and at the same time comfort those who are disturbed as we as a people long to know what it is like to live a life of worship that is shaped by you, King Jesus. We pray in your name. Uh, All this is possible in the name of Christ. Amen. So first... A life of worship changes us. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a famous famous, uh, preacher uh, many, many years ago, and he uh, did 10 sermons on the first two verses of Romans 12. That just goes to show there's there's a deep density and importance to these first two verses. And in in that importance and in that sense of uh, density, it needs to be pointed out that we understand what uh, true, proper worship is, what the essence of worship is in these first two verses, as Paul writes. And here, Paul is equating proper worship with sacrifice. He's equating the two. He's, he's showing how they're interconnected, how they're synonymous, how worship and sacrifice are one and the same. And this is not simply just a Christian issue, it's an existential reality. All of us um, are those who sacrifice. And you may think, I I don't know what that really means or how that comes to bear. And to answer that question, I'll say this. I'll I'll say, um, we don't have a sacrificial problem. That you and I have no problem sacrificing. And here's why. Uh, eight days out of the week, I will choose to sacrifice for myself, hands down. Uh, I will choose to worship and sacrifice myself. And, and the thing about self-worship is this, it's subtle. That the ways and rhythms of self-worship and self-sacrifice are so subtle in our everyday life. 
And here's how uh, they're subtle. It's, it's the way we coddle our creature comforts. It's the way we dig moats around our desires so no one can touch them. It's, it's the way we push anyone or anything aside that speaks anything against us that we don't like. About who we are, what we want, what we want to be. That self-worship and self-sacrifice is such a natural thing because we are self-protective creatures. We have no problem sacrificing for what we want. This week, I watched one of my favorite movies. It's a, it's a dark drama, so I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but uh, it's called There Will Be Blood. And in it, Daniel Day-Lewis uh, plays this oil tycoon character named Daniel Plainview. And Daniel Plainview begins the movie as um, a calloused, as in hand, uh, calluses on his hands, um, blue-collared uh, oil man who's trying to dig his own well, just, just him, and a shovel and a bucket. And the end of the movie shows how he has a mansion and how he's accomplished and well-known and he's a big dog in the oil industry. And so uh, the difference between the beginning and the end of the movie is how it chronicles everything he's done to accomplish everything for himself. And it includes things like swindling town people uh, in the desert uh, to gain their oil rights. Uh, It includes uh, different things like... um, taking on an orphaned son and adopting him. And then when that orphaned son goes deaf because of an an accident at the the oil uh, rigs, he's uh, thrown away and and pushed off uh, to uh, somewhere far, far away. And he does other things like kills imposters who try to take money from him. And he does things like uh, publicly embarrass his competitors And then he also gets baptized even to to gain the rights to do a pipeline, right? He does all of these things. And he says this uh, at some point in the movie. He says, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. There are times when I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Daniel Plainview has no problem sacrificing for the things he wants so badly. He knows no bounds to getting what he wants. And what I would say to us this morning is that's how we often function when it comes to sacrificial worship. That we have no problem sacrificing for ourselves because we always win in the end. And that we don't have a sacrifice problem. Instead, we have an an object of our sacrifice, an object of our worship problem. There's very little we will not do to get what we want as we live to the tuning fork of our own desires. What this morning are you deeming ultimately worthy as you give it ultimate worth? So Paul is entreating and showing the beauty about how a life of worship changes us how a life of worship uh, changes us. And he's saying how you take the eyes off of self, this natural action of worship, taking the eyes off of self and putting it on God. But he's, he's giving a motivator. Why would you choose God to worship? And there's a single motivator, he says. He says, mercy. He says, takes eyes off yourself, put it on God because God has moved towards you already in 
mercy. The mercy of God is something that changes us as we place our worship on, on him. True worship is where we sacrifice, not for ourselves, but for the one who's shown us great, great mercy. And Paul says, uh, here's how you worship. Your act of true worship in the first verse. Uh, he says, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Um, it's important to know here, though. Sacrifice is not this Old Testament cut an animal for blood and cover sins. That's already been done. Hebrews talks all about how Jesus is the one sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, the, the sufficient blood for our sins. So what is Paul saying here? That a true worship is sacrifice. What is he saying to us? And he's saying to truly worship is to truly sacrifice in a way that your whole life goes to the one who has shown you mercy. That it's not a blood offering, it's a whole life offering. It's a, it's a whole life sacrifice because of God's mercy. One of the first words he says in chapter 12 is therefore. And so think back to your English teacher in high school. What is therefore, therefore? And we have to see that Paul in chapter 12 is saying therefore in light of the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's saying in light of all of this, right? In light of all of these indicatives is a, is a word. All these truths Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. In light of all of that, therefore, offer yourselves as living sacrifices by the mercy of God. In light of the mercy of God. He doesn't say, in light of everything I've said, uh, do better, shame on you, run from others who aren't like you. He says, offer yourself to God because of his mercy. True worship comes when we give ourselves to God because we realize he's given himself to us already. True worship changes who we worship, and it also changes how we operate. Uh, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, uh, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here he talks about renewing your mind. So why not other faculties? Why not hands or ears or eyes or why not something else? Why is Paul saying our mind? And Proverbs reminds us the importance of our mind. Above all, Proverbs says, guard the door of your mind with diligence for out of it uh, are the issues of life. He's saying we have to renovate, transform, renew the MO of how we exist, how we see the world around us. That's when we begin to have this life of worship change us. When there's a, not an outward conformity to what we see around us, but an inward transformation. So how does this inward transformation take place? Uh, this week, uh, there's an interview that came out with um, an interviewer and Tim Keller. And the interviewer is saying, uh, Tim Keller, you're a famous pastor and, and, and uh, author and among other things. Uh, how are you dealing with suffering 
Uh, Tim Keller was just diagnosed recently with um, uh, pancreatic cancer, and 80% of people who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer die within a year of their diagnosis. And so she's saying, how are you reckoning with this? And he's saying this. He said, uh, my, I realized when I was diagnosed that my idea of hope was so abstract. It was so abstract. And he says, I needed to really let it sink in. He said, I needed the idea of hope to go through my mind, into my heart, and sink in. That's when uh, real transformation happens. Because he, sa- he says, uh, the head and the heart are interconnected. And so what I would offer to you this morning and myself this morning is that you and I need a renewal that goes through the head into the heart and transformation happens when we really begin to go from an abstract sense of worship to extremely concrete reasonings that are all grounded because of the mercy of God. That the mercy of God changes everything about us, even the way we are motivated. It brings about an inward transformation. Maybe this morning you need a renewal that's not just cognitive, uh, but emotive, pathos. Because far too long, worship has felt so stale because of truths and facts that you need to experience the living God. And maybe it's the reverse. Maybe it's all uh, been emotive, and you need to understand that God is someone who moves towards you to know exactly what Christ has done as you experience him. Whatever it may be, true worship changes us because the mercy of God changes us. Our God is about mercy and he's about transformation. That's the God uh, that we worship. So just as, um, just as worship, a life of worship changes us, it also involves us. The second idea that Romans 12 talks about, that a life of worship involves us. And namely, uh, Paul shows us it involves our gifts. He has this laundry list of things and reasonings why. And he, he, he starts off with the understanding and the assumption that you are gifted. It's an assumption he takes. He's not trying to reason with you or, or trying to make you really think. He's saying it's already known. You, you have gifts. And maybe you think today, um, I have no idea how I'm gifted. Or maybe you think, there's no way I'm gifted. And maybe you think, I just try to be humble and not think about myself and how I'm good at things and gifted at things. Maybe you know your Enneagram number, uh, and you have cracked the code on you, yourself, and you. Whatever it is, Paul is saying, because you bear the image of God, you have gifts. He says in verse 3, For by grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have, uh, do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He's assuming you have gifts, and he's imploring those who have gifts to use them. That there's no gift too small to be used by God. But how do you discover a gift, right? You're saying there's, everyone's gifted. How do you know? 
Paul gives a straight answer of self-awareness. That self-awareness will bring about an understanding of how each of us endowed a gift that the world needs. And it's something also that we we loathe because self-awareness brings about everything that is hard and wrong about us. That we have to have a full scope of who we are. That's what self-awareness brings. And yet it's also a great understanding of who exactly we are. He says, sober judgment, self-awareness, sober judgment. Tim Keller says, sober judgment is something, uh, to be sober means to be rigorously accurate, completely in touch with reality. We are to think straight about ourselves, neither too low nor too high. Neither too low nor too high. It's because the gospel is something that says all of us are one. We're all in need of the same Savior. We all are together one. And yet, so different. So completely different. Roland Conklin can sell cookies uh, to the cookie monster. She's so good at that. John Riley is amazing in healthcare. Enrique Vizoso has a mind of a COO that blows your mind, right? All of us are endowed with deep gifts. It's an understanding. What about you have you been gifted with that goes to the story of redemption that God is writing in the world as you live a life of worship? Last night I was talking with Daryl Heald. He's someone who uh, is in this city and he helped, uh, among other people, start CFC, Chattanooga Football Club, and, and he helped start an organization called Generous Giving, among many other things. And he was saying last night that as a young businessman, he was reading um, a John Maxwell book. And it was called uh, The 21 Indispensable Qualities of a Leader. And he said as a young businessman, he tried to, uh, to do all 21 of these things. He said he tried and tried and tried. And he said he realized at some point he's really only good at probably two of them. And he said, as I'm realizing I'm probably only good at two of them, I was starting these businesses Nine of them succeeded, two failed. And in the ones that succeeded, he said, I, I, I let them all go. I, put, I gave them all to someone else. And I said, how did you start this thing and then hand it off to someone else? Like, it's, it's your baby. How did you do that? And he said, self-awareness. He said, the very thing that he knew, how he was built, who he was made to be, he found through self-awareness. He's not trying to be the 21 things. He knows God has made him to be the two. What are the things that God has made you to be that totally are endowed from him and go back to him in a life of worship? So you are gifted. You have distinct gift. It's good and exciting that God involves how you're good at stuff with what he's about. It's amazing. It's a joy of the Christian life. And yet at the same time, we don't always hit home runs. So put another way, at the same time, we aren't always functioning out of our gifts perfectly. And what I want us to know now is that a life of worship doesn't just involve our gifts as it involves us. A life of worship also involves our liabilities. A life of worship involves our liabilities, which makes the Christian faith uh, redeeming. 
And here's why. You don't always hit home runs, and there are times when you fail miserably at things. And there are times I fail miserably at things. And there are things that we fall short in, and there are things that are shortcomings and liabilities all the time in our lives. Um, this past week, about 10 days ago, we went on a staff retreat. And it was a two-day retreat. One day was um, uh, spent praying and, and uh, thinking together. And um, the next day was uh, marked with um, sharing uh, all day uh, a formidable wound and a gift that we have. And um, as we shared what, what we bring to the table on a, to the staff as a gift, um, and we think we're good at, and, and, and others affirm that as we build trust. Uh, in my mind, I thought to myself, how in the world am I going to share something that creeps in the back of my head 24-7? What's the liability, the formidable wound that I carry with me all the time? How am I going to share that with the people who know me? Because it's a liability. Because when they know that about me, then they'll make sense of all my failures. For me, I was, I'm, I'm a little boy. And when I put my dad's suit on as a little boy, they didn't fit. And the only difference now is that the suit fits, but there's still a little boy inside. It's a liability. It's a formidable wound. How at all could it be used? And yet, uh, the Christian faith and Christian worship invites those things about us to say, our God is big enough to handle those things. The deficiencies that you have and I have are not too big for God to use, are not too big uh, to go untouched by mercy. To use your liabilities in a life of worship requires vulnerability. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, he says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully around hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So easy in our lives is it to make the liabilities, the hard things, the failures, the defining factor, and yet we keep that defining factor to ourselves. And God is saying, I want to be a part of it and, and bring that to me in a life of worship. Not just the home runs you hit with your gifts, but even the things that are hard because those things are not too much for my mercy. There's a counselor and psychologist named Jim Cofield and he said this. He says, God's story is a story about connection and redemption. Satan's story is about isolation and separation. In what ways do you feel like your liabilities, the things you look at, are just too much for God to handle? A wound, a pain, a grief, a deferred dream. Things that should go untouched because they speak so much to you.
And this morning, I'm here to remind you and remind myself the fact that we are made to be in God's story, a story of connection and a story of redemption as we live vulnerably with our gifts and our liabilities. That's how worship uh, involves who we are. And lastly, a life of worship fuels us. Uh, the largest section of this chapter is uh, the last section, um, 9 to 21, I think the verses are. And it's talking about uh, what uh, the people of God are supposed to be marked with and do. It's these little phrases that are really are powerful and amazing. Um, you, you should go read those. Um, and yet, they aren't simply a to-do list. Uh, the first part's about how we relate to our um, believers and Christians around us. The other part is about how we relate to uh, the world and engage the world around us. And it's not a to-do list. Because Paul's trying to say, these are simply small evidences of following King Jesus. That these are things, yes, you should aspire to be, and yet, if you seek simply to aspire to be these things and do these things, you'll miss him completely. But in fact, when you begin to follow Jesus in worship, uh, you see these things pop up. A life of worship fuels us, and these things become reality. These small things because we begin to realize we don't have to have the, the last word. That section talks about things like um, love others, serve others, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, weep with those who weep, never avenge, live peaceably. That's just scratching the surface. Paul is saying all of those things become reality when you begin to realize we don't have the last word, but we worship someone who does. A life of worship fuels us because we begin to realize and open up our hands and say, the one we're worshiping, the one who's been merciful is big enough for me to have margin. For me to have margin to love those who are uh, easy to love and to even engage and love those who are extremely difficult. This truth fuels us we're given endless margin to love those around us. And that fuels us because it's the same thing. A life of worship is the same thing that fueled Christ. That this idea is not simply in a vacuum that, that worship fuels us. It's the very motivation and the very reason Christ did everything he did. We do those things in the list at the end love others, serve others, uh, draw near to those who are low, and don't avenge. We do all of those things because the pattern of Christ set for us is something we engage. A life of worship fuels us because we realize he is going to take care of it all. Ultimate worth to someone who is ultimately worthy is the one we worship. And because he has and deserves ultimate worth, he will take everything about us and make us new. The story of the Christian hope is that uh, 
He was stripped. Uh, he was condemned in a kangaroo court, uh, carried the criminal's cross, stripped of clothes, left by all of his friends naked, all because he saw something beautiful in you to give mercy and pour mercy. And in light of that mercy, as living sacrifices, we have endless margin to love because that's the love we've brushed up against and we've uh, had sink into us because it goes from abstract in worship to extremely beautiful. We don't do something that Christ himself has not already done. A life of worship is something that is beautiful because the one who is making all things new has embodied it himself. It's the story of Easter in these coming days that our God is one who accomplished and was, was not given mercy on a cross so we, he could pour out mercy from the cross. That's where we live from. Let's pray. Lord, a life of worship fuels us because we don't have to wonder how things will turn out. Lord, you invite us to the same pattern you took as we trust in your sacrifice to make all things right. And so, King Jesus, this day, would you change us as we give you ultimate worth because you are ultimately worthy. May a life of worship change us. May it involve us. May it fuel us to know you're a God who is not too small to take on even the largest things in our lives. We pray this, Christ, because of your mercy. In your name, amen.